Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. Glad to see you're uh, persevering through 2020 so well. Uh, everything was normal the last time I was here. Um, I want to say something that will get me disinvited from coming back, but I just wanted to make sure you knew that it must have been six years ago that I had lunch with Alex in Atlanta. And he told me that he wanted to be part of planting a church in Winston-Salem. And, oh, by the way, he wanted to be working on a PhD in historical theology. And I basically said, you're crazy. And, um, and then he still remained my friend. And then he invited me back. And uh, now you're done with the degree, and this is not a church plant. Uh, this is uh, a church. And uh, I couldn't be more grateful to be able to have seen the way God has grown you. And of course, when I say grow, we all think numerically, and certainly that's true. But really, it's uh, hearing people, even in Sunday school this morning, just responding to the teaching and excited about this overview of the Gospels. Uh, I see spiritual growth and am thrilled uh, to be a part of that, thrilled to be sort of like, uh, I'm not a Deprima, but I feel like I'm part of the Deprima family, having gotten to know Zach and Aaron in Atlanta. Of course, there are the brother Anthony and now Alex, so I just want to be invited over for Christmas one year. <laughs> Our passage is Ecclesiastes 1 and most of chapter 2. So all of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. Uh, as you're turning there, again, uh, I want to tell some of you a story uh, that Leo Tolstoy wrote. The story is entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And it's about a Russian peasant by the name of Pechum. And uh, Pechum had uh, a little bit of savings and a little bit of luck, and he managed to gain some property, uh, which was a big deal because he began with nothing. He had a little bit of property, but he always wanted more, and he was always striving, and I would say conniving, to get a little bit more land in Russia. Well, one day he sold uh, everything that he had, and he moved to a, a part of Russia, I'm pretty sure in the Far East, that had lots of land, and he was told that he could gain lots of land. And sure enough, there was a tribesman, a wealthy landowner in this part of Russia, who had uh, a, a lot of land and made Pechum an offer he really couldn't refuse. He said that if you give me a thousand rubles, I'm going to give you as much land as you can travel around in one day. And he said, here's the deal. You've got to start at daybreak and you've got to be back where you started uh, at dusk. And if you don't, you forfeit the thousand rubles you gave me and you're not going to get any land. Well, Pechum, who wanted lots of land, he agreed to this deal. And about the time, well, so he left right at daybreak. He's charting, you know, his course. And about the time, you know, wisdom said he should have turned around and got back to the starting point, he said a little more land. And so he goes a little bit further. Well, that happened several times. And basically, he can tell the sun is about to set and uh, so he starts really booking it towards the start. He's running at this point. Uh, obviously, it's late, but it's still very hot. And what do you know? He makes it to the starting line right as the sun is going down. And then he collapses and dies. Leo Tolstoy. And now the story ends with these words. His servant, that's Pechum's servant, picked up his spade and dug a grave long enough for Pechum to lie in and buried him in it. 
Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Now, Tolstoy must have read Ecclesiastes. This is a book summarized nicely in the passages that we're going to be covering this morning. We are all tempted to chase after something that we think will make our life matter. It was land for Pechem. It may be something else for you, but we all want something. And in the end, as Tolstoy taught, but really gleaning from the teaching of Scripture, in the end, we all wind up where we began. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. Now, Ecclesiastes, this book, makes one ask the question, well, certainly there is more to life than running hard only to collapse into a six-foot grave. There must be something more to life than that. Well, if you're a Christian, well, certainly you know that. You know the answer to life. We've been singing and praying and, and hearing read the answer to life all morning long. And if you are a Christian, you probably tell your unbelieving friends that Jesus Christ is what gives meaning to life. You've undoubtedly told that to your unbelieving friends time and time again, and you are right, of course. But here's the problem. Our non-Christian friends don't see their need for Christ. And so you're telling them to look to Christ when they're quite content in their life without Christ. So telling them to, to come and look to Christ when they're happy without Christ is a little bit like telling someone to come and eat when they're already full. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is here to make us hungry. It's got a really unique and amazing purpose. Its very design is to make us hungry for the Lord. And it's a remarkable book in that capacity. It's here to help us to see that, that everything that we pursue under the sun will ultimately let us down. And in that sense, we are all like Pechem, who ran all day long to win a huge estate, only to die with just enough land to bury him. And until you, you recognize that, that point of, of Ecclesiastes, until you recognize that, well, you're never going to recognize your need for Christ. And then speaking to the Christian, the more deeply you recognize that, the more deep and rich your relationship with Christ will be, and you'll enjoy saying these words of C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so we learn this from Ecclesiastes. And so my prayer for you is that this message in these chapters would loosen your grip on the world and tighten your grip on Christ. Okay, the title Ecclesiastes of this book is from the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering, uh, translated often church. The author of Ecclesiastes calls himself the, the preacher. He's the one who gathered the people together. And in fact, that actually is literally his name. It's, it's gatherer. But as the gatherer 
our translators have just identified him as the, the preacher because that's kind of what preachers do. They gather people together to hear a message. Now, he identifies himself in verse 1 as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Sounds a lot like Solomon, an older, wiser Solomon. He's seen it all. Uh, he's seen the world. He has sought for happiness in the world. And then he shares what he's learned with the ecclesia, with the gathering. Now, again, uh, this is obviously a rather long passage. Uh, there are things, though, that I think we can learn when we look at a passage from, you know, 3,000 feet rather than from 30 feet. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to do today. I can't go into all the details, but I trust that you'll leave today with the thrust of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, which quite honestly is the thrust of the book as a whole. I have three points. I'm just going to give them to you one at a time. So here we go. Point number one. First, the fleeting nature of life should humble you. The fleeting nature of life should humble you. Now, this is, this is the truth found in the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes 1. Life is fleeting. Translators have uh, debated what the opening words of verse 2 should be. The ESV has vanity of vanities, right? Something that it, that's vain is futile um, or worthless. The NIV has meaningless, meaningless. The, the Hebrew word behind vanity there is, is hebel, and it's a word that is, literally means vapor. So verse 2 could read vapor of vapors. So the preacher is saying that everything is like the morning mist that burns away when the sun rises, or everything is like the smoke coming off of a burning uh, ember that, you know, wafts away into the air. Everything is, is like that. And, and by the way, when he says everything, he means everything, right? In, in, in verse 4, he writes, a generation goes and a generation comes, and that includes, like, you and, and me. It includes, you know, your generation and your parents' generation and our children's generation, right? The generation excuse me, the greatest generation goes, the baby boomer generation comes, generation X goes, the millennial generation comes, I guess generation Z, I don't know what's after Z, do we start over with A, I don't know. And then the preacher who really wants his, his readers to, to grasp this, he just goes on to illustrate this uh, in verses 5 through 8, he says, regardless of what we do, regardless of what we accomplish, life just marches on, right? In verse 5, the sun rises only to set and to rise again. In verse 6, the, the wind blows north or south, then north, round and round throughout the earth. Right? Verse 7, streams flow into the seas, but the seas never grow full. It just keeps happening again and again, right? Life marches on. Nature is relentless. Kings come and go. Right? Presidents are elected only to fly away on Marine One four years or eight years later. CEOs get hired and they get fired. Pastors are installed and they get retired, right? Life marches on. There's a, a river not far from my home, and I like walking along the river, and I just look at it, and I think, this is what the river must have looked like 100 years ago. And I just wonder who was walking along this river 100 years ago, 100 years ago. And I think, well, maybe if Jesus doesn't come back in the next century, who's going to be walking along the river, you know, 100 years from now? 
And I think about that, and I just feel really small and kind of sort of insignificant. And that, that fleeting nature of life that the preacher is driving home, that, that idea is there to humble us. Now, we find the same idea in the New Testament. If you went to James chapter 4, verse 14, you would read the question, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes. Right, so being made aware of that, it's such a simple truth, but being made aware of it is supposed to humble you. Um, and we're, we're all in need of a little humility. Like all of us are tempted to a kind of pride that Ecclesiastes is ready to, to knock down. In, in My Fair Lady, maybe three of you will know what I'm talking about, Eliza Doolittle borrows from Ecclesiastes to put Professor Higgins in his place. She sings to him, there'll be spring every year without you. England will still be here without you. There'll be fruit on the tree and a shore by the sea. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. Right? She is channeling Ecclesiastes. Now, but the preacher says more than that. He says, because life marches on, because the sands of time stop for no man, this gets a little depressing, so sorry about that, but it's just the Bible. Because of that, all of our contributions to society are really insignificant. And that's the point there in verse, verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. So I've got a friend who collects uh, long rifles, uh, Kentucky long rifles. I think he's got some from North Carolina, certainly some from Georgia. And, and one day, you know, he was showing me his collection, but he showed me this contraption that, that obviously wasn't a Kentucky or a long rifle. It was a metal contraption. It had a trigger like a gun, but it had no barrel. And it had this metal basket on the top of it. And I had no idea what it was. He asked me what it, what it was. I said, I don't know. He said, it was a lighter or it is a lighter. You put tinder, you know, in the top of that little metal basket. There's some flint there. You, you, you strike it you, you, like you're shooting a gun, and a spark flies up, ignites the tinder, and someone could, could light their, 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 their fire in their kitchen back in the day. Now, now, now once, that was cutting-edge technology. Like, that was a big deal. And uh, then it was replaced by new and better tech, right? And so forth and so on. Once it was new, and now it's not new. Right. There's better ways to start a fire now, new ways, but, it, but it's all the same. That's what the preacher is saying. It's, it's all the same. There's nothing new under this. and Not really. Right. Great books are written only to be replaced by, by greater books. Um, again, great tech is created only to be replaced by greater tech. Life goes on. It goes fast. There's nothing really new. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Again, that, those expressions come from Ecclesiastes. Look at, look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. In other words, even as I, I'm sharing all this with you from the Bible, 
the, the Bible anticipates there's something wearying about realizing all this is true. It, it's burdensome to be faced with our mortality, right? To, to realize that in a sense, we are all replaceable cogs in the machine of life. There's something wearying about that. And, and when the preacher says a man cannot utter it, he means that, that when you grasp this, when the brevity of life crashes upon you like a wave crashing upon the seashore, when you recognize that, uh, you, you're just, you're silenced. It's like, what, what can I say? You can take it in with your eyes, you can hear all about it with your ears, but it seems that there's no satisfying that answer to the question, do you really matter in this fleeting world under the sun? And so you're, you're humbled, but you're also a little perplexed. And that's, you know, if you're, if you're tracking with Ecclesiastes, that idea of, of not just humility, but being perplexed, it's, it's there. Now, verse 11 may be the most humbling verse in our passage. Look there, verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So, our memory of what has gone before us is pitiful. So, I'm going to do a little back and forth. Sorry, Alex, I don't know if you do this, but raise your hands if you know your parents' name. Okay. Your grandparents? Great-grandparents. Great-great-grandparents. Okay, a few genealogists here, right? It is quite possible and even likely that your great-grandchildren will know little to nothing about you. And I just say that to humble you. The fleeting nature of life should humble you. You are not as important as you think you are. None of us is, and most of our names will be forgotten. And that takes us to our next point. Second, nothing in this world can bring you understanding and joy. Nothing in this world can bring you understanding and, and joy. When faced with the fleeting nature of life, the preacher, he tried to find meaning. He looked for joy. And he went on a search for satisfaction, but he could not find it. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, the preacher summarizes his findings. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, vapor. And a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be, be counted. In other words, the, the preacher has been looking for ways to prove that life isn't a vapor. And he was unsuccessful. He was looking for meaning and satisfaction under the sun. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly, and I perceive that this also is but a striving 
after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So that wisdom he's talking about there in verse 18 isn't sort of the biblical wisdom as much as he is aware of the brevity of life. Chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity, vapor. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So in other words, with virtually unlimited wealth at his disposal, the preacher, who is also, was also a king, sought out every pleasure to make sense of this fleeting life. What could he do to make it worthwhile to get out of bed in the morning? In verse 3, he mentions wine. He thought if he could just numb his senses just a bit, he might take the edge off the world, and the world might seem less pointless, and it might be more comfortable. He looked for understanding and joy in a bottle. Now, at other times, he devoted himself to his business. Right? Look at verse 4. I made great works. I, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. In other words, he thought to himself, if I could just build something, and if I could just build something, something that would last, well, maybe that will help me make sense of this world that I'm in. Maybe that will bring me joy. If I could just know that I left something behind. So he did all he could to accumulate wealth, as much wealth as possible. Verse 7 said that he had many, many slaves or, or indentured servants. He had a gigantic staff. He had livestock. He had precious metals. He had lands. He owned many companies, right? This is the Warren Buffett of Israel. So he gave himself to laughter. He gave himself to wine. He gave himself to pleasure. He gave himself to uh, accumulating and building. He gave himself to, to, to storing up wealth. He gave himself over to every sensual delight. And that's how the passage ends in verse 8, where he talks about experiencing many concubines, called there the delight of the children of man. Now that concubine, that word concubine is really a, a delicate translation of a difficult word that certainly implies he used women for their bodies. He was America's Hugh Hefner, if you will. Long story short, he ran hard to enjoy everything that the world had to offer. Verse 9, so, just kind of summarizing it, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was, this was my reward for all my toil. After he had everything he wanted, 
he felt emptier than when he began. That's what verse 11 is saying. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vapor and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's a, it's a, it's a chilling, it's, a, it's a really a chilling chapter. There's a man by the name of David Foster Wallace. He uh, was a great uh, modern American writer who had a similar experience to the one described by the preacher here. Uh, he wrote toward the end of the 20th century, toward the beginning of the 21st century, and by the time he was in his 30s, he had achieved remarkable success. Uh, everybody was interested in everybody. Lots of people were interested in reading uh, what he wrote, but, but nothing satisfied him. He was the sort of man prone to sort of be brooding and, and thinking a great deal, not unlike the preacher. And at one point he said, he said, a lot of my problem, as he was sort of lamenting the fact that he didn't feel full or happy, he said, a lot of my problem is I don't really have a brass ring. In other words, he accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish. There was no longer a brass ring to chase. And he, and he said to the guy interviewing, he said, I'm kind of open to being told what to chase now. Well, Wallace never found an answer. And a few years after that interview, before he hit the age of 50, he committed suicide. Right? Vapor of vapors, all is vapor, a striving after wind. So what's the preacher telling you? You can devote yourself to work or to school. Uh, you can devote yourself to wealth. You can devote yourself to all sorts of physical pleasures. But eventually, and here's where Ecclesiastes is just so straightforward, eventually your job's going to end. Eventually your wealth is going to be passed on to the next generation who might not even know your name. Eventually, you're going to realize that a life devoted to sexual gratification isn't as fulfilling in the long term as you think it will be. You will wind up feeling broken and unloved and empty. And so the, the, the truly wise person, not just wise with knowledge, but the truly wise person knows all is vanity and is striving after the wind, and there's nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, Everything, basically everything that I've said so far this morning could be affirmed by unbelievers. Many non-Christians would affirm that there's nothing truly fulfilling about devoting yourself to wealth, to work, to sex, to alcohol. Right? David Foster Wallace was an unbeliever. He figured out vanity of vanity, all his vanities. He knew that. Let me give you another example just because I, I want you to see how, how attainable this truth is. In the 1990s, I think the most popular television program on the air was the sitcom Friends. This is when the three networks still dominated uh, media. And to be a star on TV on Thursday night was to be a household name, really, throughout the world. Now, Matthew Perry played the character of a man by the name of Chandler on Friends. By his 20s, when he was the star on this television program, he had everything the world could offer him, including a million dollar a sitcom salary, an episode salary. 
But behind the scenes, he was a train wreck. Drugs and alcohol owned him. Now, unlike David Foster Wallace, who committed suicide, Perry didn't end his life. No, he realized that fame and fortune don't bring happiness. He realized drugs aren't the answer, and so he began to devote himself to helping other people because he decided that real happiness, true happiness, is found in, in using your life to help others. Okay, that's where Perry landed. Now, did Matthew Perry solve the riddle of life? Many out there today would say he really did. But the preacher looks at it differently. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So the preacher is saying, I want to be wise. I want to be genuinely wise. I don't want to be a fool. I want to walk in the light. I don't want to walk in the darkness. And so perhaps we would say, you know, serving others is walking in the light. And serving yourself is being a fool and walking in the darkness. And so maybe Matthew Perry's onto something. But then reality hit the preacher in the head. Look again at verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. In other words, the same event happens to the wise and the foolish. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. So Matthew Perry may have beat drug addiction, but the preacher is saying he, he can't beat death. Right? The, the foolish drug addict and the wise life coach, they both die. And this is the riddle of Ecclesiastes, and in one sense, it's the riddle of life, right? The Bible is a very honest book. You, you can devote yourself to good things, but you're still going to die. You can devote yourself to wicked things, and you're still going to die. We might accept, accept the latter, but we're not so comfortable with the former, and so I imagine the preacher is wrestling with all of this. He's sitting on the side of the river. He's saying, you mean to say, I could give up everything, I could devote my life to the Peace Corps, and I'm still going to wind up in a casket with nothing to show for my work? And the text says that's absolutely right. And now how did he take the news? Look at verse 17. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Who's ready for me to stop preaching right about now? <laughs> now look, maybe, maybe you can relate. Maybe now, maybe in the past, but, but maybe you, you can relate to this. You've had dark moments when you've wanted to give up. When life didn't seem worth living. Moments that you, maybe you wanted to disappear. 
Maybe you, 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 you feel this way even right now. You have a hard time getting out of bed. You, you work to put on a happy face. You've got the right answers in your head. You're good theologically, but your heart isn't always there. You'd rather go away, and maybe you wouldn't actually say it verbally, but you hate life. And the preacher understands you. The Bible understands you. In fact, there's no other book in the universe that understands you the way this book understands you. The preacher has looked straight into the eyes of the world, and he's discovered that the secret to life's riddle cannot be found in helping the poor, a wise life, any more than spending money on yourself, the foolish life. Life's riddle can't be found in getting rich. It can't be found in getting drunk. And if this is you, if you are, if you just happen to be in a state like this now, I want you to know that there's hope, that the sermon's not done. And, and in fact, that we find glimmers of hope in our, our very passage. Glimmers of hope that point us to the one who gives our life meaning. But to see that, you got to stick with me through one more point, okay? So understanding and joy cannot be found under the sun. So here's number three. Don't look for joy under the sun. S-U-N. Look for joy in the sun. S-O-N. Okay? So I mentioned at the start of the sermon that this book... Ecclesiastes is here to make you hungry, like to create in the pit of your stomach a longing for meaning. It does more than that. It points the readers to the only place meaning can be found, the person and work of Christ. Now, for me to say that, you've got to recognize that the Bible is one book with one point. Every book in the Bible is a testimony to the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you. One phrase is repeated 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a phrase we must not ignore. It's the phrase, under the sun. We've seen it throughout our chapter. Chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 9. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 14. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity. Chapter 2, verse 11, there is nothing to be gained under the sun. Chapter 2, verse 17, what is done under the sun was grievous to me. Now, why does he keep repeating that phrase, under the sun? When the preacher says, all is vanity, all is vapor, he's talking about the life we live under the sun, the life we live here on earth without reference to another life. Without reference to the life to come. Without reference to the reality that we are in fact eternal beings. The life lived under the sun is a life lived without paying attention to what's out there or up there. But my I've got a, a great dog who is poorly trained. And therefore, my dog never leaves my house if he is not on a leash. 
my dog does not know life outside of being attached to a leash. How he would enjoy running through a field in freedom. I may be a bad dog owner, but he will never enjoy that freedom because I'll never see him again. That is his life on a leash. And that, in a strangely good parallel, is what it's like to live life under the sun without reference to what's really out there and the glories of the God who made you. So we've already seen that understanding and joy cannot be found under the sun. It can't be found in your job. It can't be found in your vacation. It can't be found in your family. It can't even be found in your good deeds. The only way to escape then the leash, the treadmill of life, the curse of death, is to believe that there's more to life than what you see under the sun. And our passage, as dark as it is, has this pinprick of hope. Now, there's more glimmers of hope throughout Ecclesiastes, but in our passage, if you look at chapter 1, verse 13, you'll see that there and there only in our passage is God mentioned. The preacher says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done. But here he mentions under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Notice the preacher there says, under heaven, not under the sun, as if to remind himself and as if to remind us that God has in fact given you the understanding that this world is not all there is, which is a hugely important thing to know. And not only that, he reminds us that God is in charge. It's God who has given us this unhappy business under the sun. He's not asleep while we are slogging it out at work. He's not asleep while we're changing the umpteenth diaper of the day. He's not asleep as we are wrangling uh, in the midst of office politics. He's not asleep as our children are prodigals. No, God has given us this unhappy business under the sun. And for what reason has God given us this unhappy business? It's so we'll realize when everything else seems futile that God is our future. Here's why Ecclesiastes is so important. You'll never realize, really realize, deeply, profoundly realize just how satisfying God is until you realize just how unsatisfying the world is. And I know some of you are thinking, Aaron, please, if you just knew how well I know that. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, <laughs> and yet not sorry, because <laughs> you're so well positioned to realize how great and awesome and glorious God is. You will never believe God is everything until you're thoroughly convinced that this world has nothing lasting to offer you. If you live as if this world is all you have, you're going to be just like Pechum, who spent that entire day under the hot Russian sun, only to be killed by his ambition and greed. And so in our flesh, we're all like that. We live our lives on treadmills. We live our lives attached to the leash. We live our lives under the sun. And to get off the treadmill, to get off the leash, 
to get into heaven, you've got to realize that there's more than life under the sun. You've got to see the futility of living for a little more land, a little more wealth, a little more fame, a little more comfort, a little more acknowledgement, a little more pleasure. You've got to stop looking for joy under the sun and start looking for joy in the sun, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. God is not absent, as verse 13 shows. God is not absent. He has a plan. And he's allowing you, he's allowing you to live a life that at times seems pointless so you'll recognize he's the point. Now you say, well, but Aaron, I don't see Jesus here. Okay, I get that. But you know what? Centuries after Ecclesiastes was written, there was another preacher who walked the streets of Israel. And he was a gatherer of people, just like the preacher of Ecclesiastes. And one day, he gathered the people together into a crowd. And you don't need to turn there, but this is Luke 12. And the preacher that I'm talking about now is Jesus. And he gathered the people together, and he's teaching them about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, right? Every, I just, I know I don't have to imagine what Jesus preached because I have the Bible, but sometimes I just, I want to sit at his feet. I know I am sitting at his feet when I'm reading the Bible, but I just imagine what it would be like to sit under his preaching as he is expounding what the kingdom of heaven is like and what it's like not to live your life under the sun. And that's what he was doing. He was delivering, like, excellent message. And then there was this guy in the crowd who raises his hand. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's like you're preaching. Where's the bathroom? Like, what are you thinking? Like you're interrupting the king of the universe to figure out like how you're going to get your 50% of daddy's inheritance? So he's listening to that. So that dude is living life under the sun, right? He's stuck on the treadmill. He's attached to the leash for sure. Jesus, who is, as, as was said this morning by Pastor Fister, so gentle and lowly, Jesus saw this as an opportunity. And so instead of rebuking him, he told him the story of a rich man who had so much wealth he didn't know where to put it. A little bit like the king in Ecclesiastes 2. And he finally decided that, well, he, he would build bigger barns and then with his future finally secure. I've got that furrow cave built up so I know that I can live to be 103 and I'm going to be able to go to Disneyland every year when there's not COVID. Right? My future is secure. I'm going to relax. I'm going to eat. I'm going to drink. Jesus is telling the story. But while the man is pondering the size of the fish that he's going to catch when he's retired, God interrupts him with these words. So this is Jesus talking to this interrupter. God interrupts the interrupter and says, God says to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's as if Jesus was preaching a sermon from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. You know, you're going to die. Who's going to get your stuff? You say your kids. What, what assurance do you have your kids are going to spend it well? That man devoted to bigger barns and a merry life needed to be told that life is fleeting. It doesn't matter how big the bonds are, barns are. One day there'll be dust. It doesn't matter how much you party. One day the music is going to stop. 
So, do you know what Jesus then told that man who wanted to live the good life? He told him this. He said, be rich toward God. Instead of the way you're living, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be rich toward God's. In other words, don't try to get rich. Be rich. Be rich toward God. How do you escape life under the sun? You let God be your wealth. You let God be your pleasure. You let God be your joy. You let God be your barns. You let God be your fame. You let God be your delight. You let God be your legacy. Now, how do you escape life under the sun? You let God be your pleasure, your security, your hope, your comfort. And, and how does God, this is very abstract, right? How does God become my treasure? Like, Aaron, I can't put God in the bank. God's not going to, you know, pay the bills. How do you let God be your treasure? Well, there's only one way, and I know it's the way preached at this church week after week, day after day. you got to believe Jesus Christ gave up everything under the sun. You've got to believe that. You've got to believe. You've got to believe that Jesus became sin so that you could become righteousness. Did you ever think about the fact that, that Jesus died in the prime of his life? Like, think about, let, let's face it, we all have non-Christian friends. We probably all have non-Christian friends who are living what from the outside in look like awesome lives. However you would define that. Non-Christian friends who are just, they are squeezing as much satisfaction as they can get out of life. And maybe some of them aren't going to die until they're 97. And we, all, we know people like that. And, and they're enjoying that. In the prime of his life, before he could enjoy the things of this world, Jesus submitted himself to ridicule and mockery and torture and ultimately death. The Son of God who had who had everything, all the glories of heaven, certainly renounced his name, renounced his fame, renounced his glory, taking on human flesh, dying a criminal's death. And so what I'm saying is, is Jesus is the only one who ever treated this world like the vapor that it is. And so I think that when I, when I even as I preach to you, and, and I tell you life is a vapor, like I know you know it intellectually. Like 99% of you know that intellectually. But when you hear it, at least when I hear it, like I'm being ministered to while I'm preaching. Like, yes, Aaron, remember this. Because I'm tempted to think life isn't a vapor. Jesus is the only one who treated the world like the vapor it is. So I love how the old hymn puts it. Thou who wast rich, says Jesus, beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becomes poor. And so that's why I say don't look for joy under the sun, look for it in the sun. Only Jesus can make you rich toward God. And I know some of you are struggling. I know that all of you have struggled I know some of you are struggling, and I know all of us will struggle. 
Some of you are tired of life. You don't know what to do. And the answer is to be rich toward God. And this requires you confess your sin against him. Don't just admit your weakness. Don't just admit your brokenness. Admit your unrighteousness and rebellion against God, your maker. Just confess to him that you've treated this world like granite when in reality it's smoke. Confess your sin to him. To be rich toward God, you've got to believe, trust that Christ is the Lamb of God who surrendered his life on a cross to forgive you of your sin so you could have everlasting life. I told that Tolstoy story, Pechum loved the world so much he let it kill him. Jesus loved his bride so much he let the world kill him for her. You are a mist. Your life under the sun is short. It is fleeting. But you are also an eternal being who will one day stand before a holy God and give an account for your life. Whatever you do with your days, remember those words of C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Don't make this world your home. Be rich toward God. Seek life in the Son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of Scripture for the profound reminder that we have from the preacher that life is a vapor. And we ask that you would help us set our minds on things above and not on earthly things, that we might be faithful to you all the days of our lives. We thank you for the work of Christ, finished and complete. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.